Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Brian Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. Today we're very, very honored to have our friend of the pod and friend in real life, David Kybe, who's a brilliant man who I thought of for today's topic, which is the end of policing, the abolition movement, prison abolition, and so many other things we want to talk about. And the reason we want to talk to Dave is not necessarily because he's the scholar or the expert on this topic, but because he's highly involved in organizing an education on this topic for socialists. So, so Dave, would you, you know, first of all, welcome, my friend, and, and would you tell us a little bit about your experience and, and what brought you to this topic? Sure. So um, the, I think my path here starts out with um, a long time ago becoming a um, death penalty abolitionist, and I was that before I was a socialist. Um, I then became a socialist, which was probably unrelated to that, and then from there became an abolitionist. Um, and along the way, I was also getting engaged in political education. And um, like a lot of people, I think the death penalty abolition kind of laid the groundwork because I think a lot of the same reasons why I was an abolitionist around the death penalty turned out to apply to the entirety of the criminal punishment system. Um, and in addition, I realized over time that the commitments that made me a socialist also, I felt, required me to be an abolitionist. Um, and so what I've been doing is um, started out doing political education with the D.C. Jacobin um, Reading Group, which I organized. Um, and then from there, more recently, had joined um, the Democratic Socialist of America, DSA, and got involved in the political education work there including helping to organize our uh, socialist night school at the Metro DC DSA chapter. And so we started that, I think, a couple years ago, um, not long after the DSA had adopted a position in favor of prison abolition. And so in our first semester, that was one of the topics we decided we really wanted to do. And that was one that I then um, took on to research and present. Um, and so now with the topic uh, becoming um, all the more acute. Um, I've continued to do that work, done a, an emergency session for our uh, night school pat in the past week, uh, another session for one of our chapters, and continuing to talk with um, other people around the country to try and help them engage in political education on this important topic. Wonderful. And I, and I notice that there was a great showing for the, the most recent uh, Zoom, right? That the night school was, was very popular, right? It's our, our highest so far. It was about 300 people, all told. And you, you see a lot of people um, online, and you know these days we're all communicating online unless we're in the streets protesting, uh, talking about various terms related to this. And, and so another reason we wanted to talk to you is there are a lot of people that are throwing out terms and using them in certain ways and also... Um, saying that they understand what the term means in a very singular way, or saying they're confused about a term. You hear about defunding, uh, you hear about, um, you know, ab abolish the police. And I wonder, as you organize these political education uh, sessions, how you think about addressing the topic in terms of the confusions versus just starting out with kind of your understanding. And I know that the background for this is 
um, a theme that I think both Ryan and I very much agree with, which is, you know, general organizer, general Baker's adage that we have to turn fighters into thinkers and thinkers into fighters. And for this, you know, the context of the protest today, especially, it makes a lot of sense because you have uh, activists that are talking, and there's a movement and a history with that movement. You have scholars, you have pundits. So, um, you know, maybe you could help us sift through the different terms. You know, as Wittgenstein said, uh, meaning is use, and, and use arises from different forms of life. And so there's a lot of different forms of life given rise to different people and organizations that are, that are kind of engaged in, um, in pushing for change and also talking about it. So how, how would you start off in a session, and how should we start off in thinking through what these terms mean? Yeah, so one of the most important things that I start off with is trying to help people understand that um, what we're doing when we have these conversations is we're joining a, um, a tradition that has existed for a long time. So the, the modern abolition movement goes back to around 1970. Um, I understand that there are um, roots even further back. It obviously calls to mind intentionally um, the abolitionist movement that ended slavery, obviously an unfinished project. Um, but that notion that I think a lot of people have this idea that this is this brand new idea that... Um, you know, people have suddenly invented all of a sudden, um, you know, off the wall. And so understanding that it's part of this longer tradition, and it comes out of the black radical tradition um, that people have been doing intellectual work and organizing on this for a long time. And obviously the intellectual part is important, but also the organizing, because I think there's also this sense that, you know, you go, oh, you can have these conversations in the abstract, but on the ground, you're talking to people. Um, to, you know, regular people that they're going to, um, this isn't going to work. Um, but abolitionists have been doing this sort of organizing for a long time. And so, you know, seeing it all as part of that larger whole is um, very important. And then the other thing um, is the importance of understanding that um, abolition isn't kind of something that happens like an on-off switch. We're not talking about kind of have... Um, it's not an event. It's a process, as I saw someone say the other day. Um, so that doesn't mean it's incremental, because I think incremental implies um, very small steps, and that's not necessarily the case. But it is something that does, would take time, over time, in order to happen. So it doesn't mean that abolitionists are kind of looking to some, like, long-off future state, like, you know, oh, in some time way off, we'll change the world. It's intended to change the world today and to have major changes today. But it is, as I say, part of a process. So um, it is not simply saying we're not going to have this institution called prisons. We're not going to have this institution called police and everything else is the same. Um, in fact, uh, the, the whole notion is that in order for this to work, um, in order for it to happen, you have to change everything and that that's good. Um, and that's why another, I think, misconception people have is this notion that abolitionists are somehow confused because they don't realize that um, it would make sense to be an anti-capitalist. But generally speaking, the vast majority of abolitionists are anti-capitalist. And it's, uh, you know, as it was for me, it's the same sort of commitments that lead them to those two things. Yeah, so... Um... Maybe just, you know, so <clears throat> I'm s sort of uh, been associated or I've been kind of on the edge of these discussions, I guess, for, for a long time. And it, it, it seems like you could say, you know, in concrete terms, 
um, what the sort of abolition movement is aiming at is a huge uh, reorientation of social resources, right? And and so, um, would you would you think it's fair to say that? The, the biggest component of that in terms of dollars, it's not even going to have anything to do with the police. You know, like police are a big chunk of city and local budgets a lot of times. But in the context of the federal budget, it's not that much. Um, you know, so if you're talking about a huge, you know, reduction of inequality and building out like a sort of comprehensive welfare state as, you know, I think you know, it's fair to say is one component of this to say that, like, instead of the police dealing with uh, a lot of these problems of crime and disorder, which are like, at bottom, a problem of lack of resources, stuff like homelessness, um, that we should have like, a much vaster state capacity to just give people money, homes, jobs, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so, would you say, you know, uh, in your capacity as an educator, you know, it, like that's that's sort of like, like the maybe the first step to 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 sort of, you know, moving away from the police as warehousing this can, all this social discontent towards actually addressing the needs of the people. I think that that's a big part of it, but I I want to caution because I think sometimes um, there's a notion. Um, among reformers where it's like, well, first we'll tackle these economic problems and that's going to resolve the problems related to crime and then we can deal with that end. And I think that generally speaking, um, it's it's both. Um, so right. I think the things that you're emphasizing are really important. But the flip side of that, if you take something like homelessness, is a really good example where um, one of the things that many abolitionists would point to about doing immediately would be decriminalizing survival strategies, right? So that would include, you know, homeless people. It would include sex work, um, you know, things that people are doing in order to um, – it would also – a big element of this is um, – uh, victims of sexual assault because often they are criminalized as well. So um, trying to focus on those sort of things. So one of the things, homelessness is a really good example. We need to provide people homes. That's how you solve the problem of homelessness. Um, but at the same time, police don't need to be dealing with them at all unless, I mean, it would be one yeah. thing if you're talking about a violent situation. But for the most part, what you have with a lot of policing is this like low levels, you know, quality of life, broken windows type stuff. And I can talk about all those more um, where, you know, as an immediate thing, you can just have kind of leaving people alone when they're not yeah. causing any problems. Um, and understanding that like, no amount of punishing people, harassing people, you know, finding them, what have, whatever, are going to turn someone who is not, does not have a home into having one, right? It's not like they have the capacity. And if we just turn up the heat enough, they're going to say, okay, fine. Like I, I have this money for rent. Now I'm going to start paying rent. <laughs> um, so it's simultaneously, I think one of the interesting things is that there's so many things, so many, um, places you can start, um, that it's not we have to go through a particular path and oftentimes abolitionists point to others you know p other people are doing organizing and saying 
you know, this fits with the way we understand this sort of thing. So obviously there are some people that want to decriminalize some of these things um, or some portion of these things. Um, and that's as far as they want to go. Um, and that's there will be times uh, Ruth um, Wilson Gilmore said something along the lines of sometimes abolitionists will travel with other people for a couple steps and then we'll, they'll part ways and that's fine. Um, you know, drugs is the obvious example, too. In D.C. right now, there's this uh, campaign to uh, it's called decriminalized nature, where it's calling for um, drugs that are natural to get the lowest level of police attention. Um, so it's hmm. not all drugs. It's not just based on some sort of notion of like the relative safety. And it's not even saying it's legal or even decriminalized. It's like a prioritization. Um, that's the sort of thing to me that seems so small as to be a mistake. Um, <laughs> whereas, but drugs are a good example where drug use can become a problem. And when it is, that should be treated as a problem. It's unlikely it can be addressed through policing. Um, and other drug use is not a problem. And we all know that because there are plenty of drugs that aren't treated as a problem. There are plenty of people when they use drugs it's not treated as a problem, right? So, and this is a good illustration of the problem, of the larger problem, which is that policing tends to only focus um, on certain types of people. So that's really interesting in terms of, I mean, because in a sense, what you're distinguishing is what what we might call non-reformist reforms versus, uh, you know, reformist reforms, right? Which is to say that those, uh, you know, since, we're not going to be able to get rid of, let's say our goal is, I think the goal should be to get rid of prisons and policing, and that's not going to happen tomorrow. It might not take a hundred years either, but there will be steps along the way. So how do you treat something that seems like a reform as a step along the way as against something that inhibits radical change? And what I'm hearing there a little bit is it kind of depends about what that reform is doing in terms of our awareness and consciousness and political education about the ultimate end and about the underlying social relations and causes of the problems or the harms. Is that a way to think about to help people figure out what things they should be on board with and incorporate and what things might be a distraction or, or actually reactionary? Yeah, I think that that is. And um, one of the things to, I think, to avoid um, in order to avoid kind of going the reactionary term is to um, there's a movement currently movements, probably not the right word, but um, a group of people who have been pushing um, recently for um, having reduced sentences or me maybe even letting people out of prison. This was even like pre COVID, although became an issue more post COVID um, for people that are so-called nonviolent offenders. Right. So the implication is here's this group of people. They are not dangerous and we can draw that line. Let those people out, um, whether it be because we think we should or because of the pandemic. Um, but when you're doing that, you're reinforcing the notion that there's other, this other group of people who are violent offenders. The implication being that it's not just a, a, a thing that they did, but about the entirety of who they are as a person. And so. Not only does only focusing on the so-called nonviolent offenders take a relatively small chunk of people out if you succeed, but you're also reinforcing all the ideological reasons of why people want to put people in prison in the first place. So, you know, both trying to avoid kind of taking a baby step in this sense and also reinforcing the kind of regressive ideology behind that are things to avoid. 
how would that relate to like various innocence projects? Because it seems to me that's slightly different insofar as there might be a lot of people that were set up or, or didn't do the thing. And they, you know, they had to cop up, you know, the plea bargaining 95% or, or more of the cases. Right. Uh, so that seems very uh, dangerous to, to not want to fight against because it's so terrible. But at the same time, it, it does ideologically do this work of, well, if, if they're, you know, if they were innocent, then, um, then that's a problem. But everyone else, you know, if they, if they actually uh, perpetrated or violated whatever the law happened to be in that moment, prison's the right place for them to be. Yeah. And I think, um, I think it's really important to talk about the fact that the criminal punishment system doesn't seem too concerned about getting the right people, um, even under its own terms, right? Um, the fact that you would think, based on what people say, um, to defend the system, that when they look at a situation like all, like the hundreds of people or whatever it is that have been released from death row as a result of DNA evidence, um, let alone other sorts of things, um, which means they were actually innocent, right? There's other reasons people could be, um, have their convictions overturned. Um, that, you would think that that would be a problem. You would think that the, these like, get tough prosecutors and people that want to be tough on crime would would be mad about this because they were tough on the wrong person. Um, That generally doesn't happen. Um, And if anything, typically prosecutors tend to resist that even when there's plenty of evidence that shows that there was a mistake prior to that. Um, Judges are relatively unwilling to look at these sort of things. And, um, you know, essentially, as I understand the doctrine, the Supreme Court has said that actual innocence is not enough to justify letting someone out of prison, having a federal judge overturn uh, a conviction. So you have to show there was some sort of procedural violation in order for that to happen, um, which is isn't that doesn't that say so much? That's it's just insane. Yeah. And the way that uh, Scalia did, um, explained this was that there was a federal or there was a constitutional interest in finality which implicitly he was suggesting was somehow more important than getting the right person. Um, yeah. Imp- appearances. Yeah. So it seems to me that this all fails on its own terms. Um, you would think that there would be some concern about the fact that there are rather, um, in, especially in big cities, um, the clearance rates of murders are very low. Um, you know, but essentially what we do is we're very tough on whoever gets caught up in the system and we don't worry too much whether it's the right people. We don't worry about the fact that if you, you know, catch one person and accuse them of a murder that they, you know, someone else might continue to, to do harm um, and all these sorts of things. And I think it's because that the project is more ideological. It's about criminalizing populations much more than, you know focusing on individuals, um, that would be a very different looking system. It's not the one we have. Yeah. Th- this, uh, I- I'm, I'm curious, uh, as to your perspective on, you know, uh, uh, like other countries, you know, European police generally are, are much less violent and, and, and punitive than American ones. You know, they, we, they have vastly fewer people in prison. Um, you know, I, I wrote a piece about the, the the Nordic model of policing, which which I would say, you know, has has gone a fairly considerable distance towards the abolitionist position, but not all the way there. They do have police in the Nordics. They do have prisons, um, but they have many fewer police. In Norway, the police have no guns. In Iceland, the police have no guns, even though I just learned this the other day. Iceland is very heavily armed. 
about a third of the of the population owns a gun of some sort, though they're mostly rifles and shotguns for hunting. Um, so it's it's not as though I uh, it's it's like a gun free sort of utopia type of place. Um, but the the way that they operate is so different than American uh, uh, models that like you know they 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 do not have police in prisons like we have police in prisons. Um, you know the 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 police presence in most of these cities is all but you know non-existent. There, there's a little documentary uh, that I that I've posted a few times. Um, you know where the, they take this LA police sergeant and they take him around and in one of the interviews he talks to this, I think uh, 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 some Norwegian fellows who who are in a sort of medium-sized city and they said, well, you know, for most of last summer we didn't have any police at all. And it was it was like it was just sort of fine, you know, because there's really nothing happening. Um, and their crime rates and the violent crime rates, there's a fair amount of burglary and so on. But but murders especially are much lower. They're about one tenth the American uh, rate in Norway. They're about a, uh, a third, maybe a quarter in Finland, depending on the year. Um but one thing they do do is clear almost all the murders. They, they, you know, if they're catching the right people, and it seems like they probably are for the most part, you know, we're talking about 97% to 100% in Iceland. Uh, Sweden's the lowest, I think, at 83%. They also have the most murders. Um, and so, like, what what is your, you know, sort of perspective on that kind of model of, you know, of a fairly timid and nonviolent but still existent police force, which main, you know, main focus is on, you know, catching violent criminals, but also when those criminals go to jail, the the prisons, the the, the sentences are much, much less than they are in the United States. And the prisons are very comfortable, you know, like it's the people have video games and, and, uh, you know, they can learn a trade. There's all sorts of libraries and stuff like that. It's, it's like a sort of a decent hotel more than it is like a, you know, concrete block with solitary confinement everywhere and so on. Um, what, what, you know, what, what's your thinking on that, you know, uh, example, I suppose. Um, so I think it's an, an interesting one. And I, I admit, I, I know a little bit about some of these practices, but not probably haven't dug it, dug in as much as I should. Um, one thing that I think about is the, the kind of same thing I would say, um, long time ago when I was thinking about the death penalty, where, um, would often have, you know, talk about the way it actually operates, all the ways with the death penalty process uh, deviates from any kind of reasonable understanding of what due process might look like, what law and theory ought to look like, um, fairness, let alone like not racism. Um, and but people would say, well, you know, but in the you know, you can imagine that there could be a death penalty that wouldn't be like that. And I, you know, maybe I can. But what I was always somewhat skeptical of is it even if it maybe was possible to, in the abstract, to build such a thing, it wasn't clear to me that it would be possible to build it in the United States. That, you know, if you have an, uh, a nation that's built on uh, racism, fundamentally divided um, along racial lines the way ours is, the way that white supremacy is so uh, central to the way that everything is organized, I'm not convinced that the possibility that this could happen in the abstract is relevant 
for us about what we can do here. I do think it's worth thinking, though, about this because um, surely I think a lot of um, people in the United States, if they really thought about it, would say that that's sort of a model is much more of what they want. Um, maybe not so much the lack of punitiveness in the the prison itself, but like the idea of the police focusing on the more serious things and being better about catching them and all those sorts of things, I would imagine was very appealing to, could be very appealing to a lot of Americans. Um, for me, the, the other thing that I kind of go back to, and I do think it's really important to think about the differences, even within the United States, there are vast differences in the system. Um, there's vast differences over time. And I think it's important because Americans often have this notion of like, well, this is just the way it is. This is just like human nature. But if it was just human nature, then there wouldn't be such drastic differences in, say, the murder rates across different countries or even within the United States. And oddly enough, it's the places in the United States that are most punitive often have the highest murder rates, which doesn't help the story. Um, But the other thing I kind of go back to is that the the model of the – criminal process system is like first something bad happens and then you react. And while that's better than not reacting, um, the ideal situation would be for the, the harm not to happen in the first place. And so, um, abolitionists often try and shift our focus away from talking about crime to harm because there's plenty of things that are harms that are not crimes or harms that are technically illegal, but aren't thought of as crimes. There's things that are, crimes that aren't harmful um, and there are harms that are not illegal and or just not dealt with through policing and prisons. And so one of the thoughts is to shift away. Oh, and then also that the very notion of crime, at least in the United States context, is exceedingly racialized. It's classed and it's gendered. Um, the The very meaning of criminal ha- was developed um, at least the way we understand it today, I think in reaction to um, there's a great book on the is called The Condemnation of Blackness that talks about this notion that basically constructing black people as inherently dangerous, inherently criminal, inherently violent was how white supremacy was legitimated after the end of Reconstruction. So moving away from slavery to at least nominal freedom. That was how um, the subordinate position of black Americans, in the United States was justified. And that, that no, those notions about criminality carry forward today, um, which is why, you know, stereotypically that's who people are thinking of with, about criminals and things like that. And so when you have someone that doesn't fit that bill, um, even when they are doing great um, harm, and even when they're committing great crime, um, aren't thought of as criminal. Um, whereas other people can be thought of as criminal simply by who they are. Um, and so, um, basically the, the shift to harm lets us do two things. One, it lets us get away from, um, this highly, highly ideological, um, regressive notion that's like rooted in our understandings of crime. It also helps us think about that the goal, I, initially should be about reducing harm on the front end and then also about addressing harm on the back end. And so right now our system doesn't worry too much about addressing harm on the front end, reducing it. Um, and if you are harmed, the only thing on offer is revenge. 
um, that's it for the most part. There's really, you know, some minor kind of victims rights things that do other things. But for the most part, um, we're really focused on, well, you know, bad things happen to you. So we're going to punish someone else and that will make you feel better, you know, or to your family, that sort of thing. Um, and so the shift to focusing on harm lets us think about, um, addressing these problems better, but, you know, reducing them and also, uh, supporting people on the back end. And so for me, if we shift our attention to say, well, what about like, if we had better policing, what if we had better prisons? Um, I think it, it gets in the way of us thinking through these much bigger questions. Um, not like inherently, but it does tend to. Um, and I think a lot about, um, there's a Angela Davis quote that I have here where she says, the ideological work that prison performs, it relieves us of our responsibility of seriously engaging with the problems of our society, especially those produced by racism and increasingly global capitalism. And so for me, um, I think, and again, you know, thinking a lot in the American context, not that I think that's the only place we should abolish these sort of things, but, um, I think that, uh, the more we can get away from thinking about protecting these institutions and shifting our minds away, the better. Um, but I also think there's a tremendous, I, I don't want to press on this too much because I also think there's so much work that can be done among people who are abolitionists and others who I think there's a lot of people who these ideas can be appealing, but they say, well, I don't want to go all the way of having no police and no, no prisons. And so while I don't take that position, I think it's okay for people to kind of do that and to kind of have us work together. Um, as long as these notions aren't used to justify, um, just not doing change. So I mean, I've had that experience of someone saying, we don't know you to do any things. We could have these better things. Um, and, you know, as long as if that's real, then we should use it to make the change. Um, we have to avoid the, the possibility that's um, or, or um, try and um, prevent that notion of keeping us from making the really significant change just because there's an abstract possibility, I guess. I was going to say what, what's nice about um, thinking about coalitional politics is that there are so many things that many, many people would agree to immediately, because especially in the wake of these protests, that the police brutality has been just so the spectacle of violence has just been so egregious and obvious to everyone um, that, you know, we can get to the contested terms of defunding the police, right? Um, but any r massive reduction in funding for police and any massive reduction in the number of police, along with what that ideologically does about what function or end the police serves, it is, is a victory and is a good thing, um, even if, you know, that can still be a, a contest later on about what needs to, to go beyond that. Um, because it, it is really clear that like as an end in itself, we need to start dismantling and defunding uh, something that is not only serving safety, right? And not only serving kind of the, the putative goals of justice uh, in so many ways that, that it purports to, but it's like a, a, like a, just a positive violence on so many people's lives that um, dismantling as much as we can that 
And then like eventually reimagining how to address social harms, there might be a contestation. And along the way, there'll probably be a contestation. But um, I just think it's important as we disagree with with comrades and others at this point that we we get a kind of unity to pressure as much as possible to dismantle what currently exists, right? Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that's interesting about this is that um, policing and prisons are, are hegemonic. Um, that is, we're, we're taught about them um, long before we fully understand what's going on. I always think it's fascinating that like, policing is represented in like children's media and you know the the way it's represented is just as a like all-around helper um it's also gendered so in children's media like oftentimes you have like a you know two women's jobs which are teacher and nurse um that are presented as women's jobs and then there's like four or five you know jobs for boys that include police um but yeah, where it's just, I know like the cops that they're just helpers. So you get lost. You ask for the policeman, um, which probably would work out fine for me as a child, but doesn't work out well for other people. Um, but then the other thing is, is it just saturates our, our adult media and our politics. So, I mean, you know, down to there are marathons of cop shows on TV at any time. Sometimes the same show for me is on like more than one channel. Um and even shows that aren't about that, you know, when they involve police and it's it's not just, oh, they're good. Um, and the, the way that both police and prisons are portrayed, it's not just that they're good. It's, you know, there's a dark side usually, but it's like, well, it's necessary because the people they're dealing with are violent and those people only understand violence. Um, so like in order to enforce the law there and stop violence, there have to be people who do violence and don't follow the law. Um is kind of a, a standard message in all these sorts of things. Um, but yeah, and even beyond that, so um, not only has um, the, the budgets of states and cities been like sucked up um, by policing and prisons in relation to other things. So we've had massive cuts and all sorts of other things, um, both long-term and very recent response to COVID. While the budgets around policing and prisons have not um, done that at all. There's been a little bit of a dip in the number of people that are in prison since say like, 2013 or so, um, but it's so small in relation to the the vast expansion that happened since 1970 that it's it's barely a blip. But the other thing that's interesting is that because of the budgeting issue, um, that it really does pit this against these things against each other in an important way. And the the way that our politics normally works is we don't um, those things are not pitted against each other. So you don't typically have politicians say we had to make cuts to higher education in order to fund all these prisons. <laughs> and you don't have mayors say the reason we're cutting public health money in a pandemic is because we're trying to keep the police budget up. Um, but that's what's happening. And I think that if you just poll people and say, do you want more funding on policing? Do you want more cops and things like that? You know, they, they generally will say yes. And people take from that, oh, people want more. Uh, you know, one of my roles is I'm a survey researcher, and I know that you can't always take these things literally. I think if you asked people, if you showed them the budget and you said, this is how much we're spending on policing, this is how much we're spending on these other things, do you think this is a good idea? They would generally say no. Um, that if we can, it is not just a question of like policing and prisons in the abstract, but it's also about all these other options. The budgeting conversation, which is, I think, why the defunding 
demand is so important, lets us understand the trade-offs in a way that our normal politics tries to obscure. Um, and it's even worse than that because oftentimes you have plenty of money in those budgets, like the housing budget might include money for the housing police, the public housing police. School budgets are going to include oftentimes money for, you know, cops in schools. Um, and so like policing and prisons end up kind of um, being part of all these social services. And that's actually one of the important things from an abolitionist perspective is not only do we want to drain this money out of police and prisons, but we also want to make sure that those other institutions um, were challenging the ways that they too are punitive, that they too are engaged in these sort of things. And so similarly, we would want to get the cops out of schools and find other ways to deal with um, school discipline. Um, and we want to transform all those institutions so that they are, you know, liberatory and not oppressive, um, which, again, is just one of the other ways in which this spills out from the simple questions of police and prisons. Right. So like decriminalizing, decarceration and generally anything that reduces the domination and social control and all these institutions that kind of mirror and mimic that same approach to social relations and social harm. Uh, that That's why it's a horizon, because that's why it's fundamentally abolishing, right? Abolition is, in a sense, abolishing capitalism, because capitalism is that complex of institutions and the superstructure of, of ideology that enforces a certain way of thinking so as to protect the property and the capitalists and, and use violence to, to enact that and discipline, right? Discipline and punish in all these different ways. So, so that's why it's, it's, it's such a vast project, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. And the the quote that I always go back to, the one that I think is the absolute most important for understanding what abolitionist means, comes from the um, amazing um, abolitionist organizer, Mariam Kaba. And she says, quote, I am actively working towards abolition, which means that I am trying to create the conditions necessary to ensure the possibility of a world without prisons, end quote. And of course, and this is an important point I don't think I made before, that most abolitionists oftentimes use prison as a stand-in for the entirety of the criminal punishment system. So they're including police and the criminal courts and probation and all those sorts of things. But that's the idea is it's not – there's plenty of things we can do right now to draw back these institutions. But to really do this, we have to change those conditions on the ground because currently – Oftentimes, there are no other ways to deal with sort of those sort of problems. So it's simultaneously like withdrawing, but also creating those other sort of conditions. Um, and that's the trick, because that helps people understand what I'm talking about in terms of this being a process and not like an act. It's not an event. Um, it's not simply... I mean, aside from the fact that we don't have the power, it's not like abolitionists are ever going to be able to like leave the rest of the world intact, but have enough power to just open prisons and let everyone out. Um, it would only come about because you had enough power that you were fundamentally changing all those other things. Um, and then the interesting thing is, is once you do that, like we talk about the horizon, when you start having these conversations about like, what sort of a world do we want and what would real public safety look like? Um, you can have, you can really opens things up because it's not a matter of abolitionists saying, here's the answers. Um, this is how we're going to solve this problem. Um, and this is the same conversation that I have doing political education when we're talking about anything, whether it's socialism or eco-socialism or what have you. You know, people often look to us when we're teaching about this stuff and say, OK, well, what are we going to do about X? 
Um, and the answer is like, well, we don't have the power to do anything about that yet. But also, if we did, we'd have to decide collectively, right? It's not just uh, like, you know, we have these answers in a box for you. Um, but it is taking seriously that um, listening to the people who are most subject to these particular problems and trying to give them um, or work to to provide power to deal with these sort of things, um, but also opening up your minds because, you know, people's first instinct is, oh, if I can't call the police, there's nothing I can do. And that's never true. Um, but we, you know, it's it's important to kind of help people think through what those alternatives that they have currently are and then what they might be um, that they don't have today. Yeah. And this, uh, you know, as a, as a side point, um, you know, when you're, when you're talking about um, poli- police and prisons, uh, it, c- it can be easy to sort of forget about the private side of that equation, which is just sort of private guard labor. I was reading an article, um, uh, a New York Times article about a study done a number of years ago. Um, it was like, as of like 2013, there are more private security guards in this country than there are high school teachers. Um, and that I think, you know, is, is just of a piece with the extreme level of inequality in this country and how much, you know, how much the ruling class has, you know, hired the working class to protect their wealth. And insofar as you have a much more equal society, you would have that labor moved into more socially productive, you know, useful activities instead of just, you know, protecting the the golden ingots or whatever of of Stephen Schwartzman. Um, <laughs> that you know that uh, it's it, there. There is a clear relationship between the amount of you know inequality of a country and the. Uh, uh, amount of guard labor, you know, and it's uh, c- completely obvious why. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a look. We have an oligarchy that is protected by, you know, a, a militarized um, police, and and it's a police state that it that is meant to discipline and punish those without to protect those who have. And that's, the, I mean, not unrelated to the fact that there aren't many. Uh, prosecutions of bankers, right? And and why like a Bernie Madoff or, or Epstein are kind of one-offs. And and to me that that's a really interesting question um, for you as well, Dave. But I, and I want to take the point though about you know whether it's Dave or any other uh, person, it's not top-down solutions we're after, but collective uh, power to to um, to gain so that there's collective decision making and democratizing of how to deal with these social harms and social relations. But that being said, like one of the things collective um, we have to think about as we become responsible citizens who aren't just kind of, you know, wage slaves that then let the elites and the, and the military uh, deal with whatever social harms are there. Um, one of the things to think about is what do we do with the Bernie Madoffs, the Epsteins, the, the corporate uh you know, villains and so forth, because, you know, back to political education, there is this vengeance that, that we have uh, in us always, I think that can be tapped that, um, that we might want to take out on people. And, and you have even DSA uh, DAs uh, that run for office that are great, like Tiffany Caban um, and, and others who say, you know, we should stop criminalizing the poor, right. And, 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 and decarcerate for these populations. But on the other hand, we need to start going after, you know, these bankers and, and these corporate criminals. 
Um, so, you know, on the road to kind of socialist democracy, uh, what do you think about, about that? And how does that fit into non-reformist versus reformist reforms? So one of the things I always think about is that the, the paradox of this sort of thing is we have this notion in the United States that we have equal justice, that everyone's equal before the law. And we know that our society is tremendously unequal. And we know that that has an impact for how it works out in the law. So I'm just thinking about like the Simpsons where every time, um, you know, uh, Mr. Burns was brought into the courtroom. They had the like 30 guys in gray suits, lawyers lined up. And then you'd have Homer with like one, you know, Lionel Hutz. Um, but that's like a real thing, right? This is this is how the tobacco companies won. This is how everybody wins is you you load in all these lawyers, you raise up the expenses um, and it becomes impossible for someone to sue them and win. Not that it never happens, but it's um Typically, it doesn't work. Um, the same thing happens in criminal justice where um, there are a tremendous number of rules that can – I wouldn't say that like they don't really protect people, but they give opportunities. If you have a lot of resources, um, you can muck up a, a thing and drag it out and raise the cost for the prosecutors to the point the prosecutors don't really like typically going after people with money. It's a lot easier to go up against someone who's like, if I just plead guilty, I can get back to my job and see my kids, right? Than it is to go up against someone who is wealthy and you're going to be completely outgunned. So what I, but what I think is really interesting about this is that oftentimes when we're talking about someone with power, um, including wealth, but not just wealth. So I'm thinking of, say, like someone like Harvey Weinstein, who, yes, he was wealthy, but he was also powerful in terms of his position within the industry. And he, he was able to use that power to get away with what he was doing for so long. So after, you know, decades of him getting away with those sorts of things, he was eventually, they say, brought to justice. I hate that terminology. Um, but so now he's in a jail, right? Um, he, you know, harmed the careers of endless numbers of actors, um, you know, who suffered, you know, uh, didn't have the success they otherwise would have had, the, you know, the financial problems and things like that, the, the psychological harm. He got away with it for a really long time. And now maybe he gets punished and maybe you can feel better. And I don't want to take anything away from someone who's been harmed in that way. I can I can totally understand how that would make you feel potentially could make you feel better. But the other thing is, is that they got away with it because they had the wealth and power to begin with. And I think it's probably easier to go after the the power than it is to have someone remain powerful and have them be punished through a system that pretends that we have formal equality. Um, the same is true as I think about prosecutions of police who, who murder people, that we're not changing what the police do. Um, we're not kind of really uh, rethinking how we think about crime and harm and all these sorts of things. We're going to leave all that intact and we're going to bring you know, a handful of people that are going to be prosecuted and, and um, have to suffer in that way. And aside from the fact that most of the time it doesn't happen, 
for whether we're talking about a police uh, officer who's murdered someone or, you know, a powerful CEO or just somebody that's very wealthy, they're almost never actually brought to justice. But then on top of it, um, the fundamental conditions that created the problem in the first place haven't changed. So maybe Harvey Weinstein isn't this, the guy in that position. And there's probably someone else in that position who can do those sorts of things. Um, maybe that particular cop won't do it anymore, but there's plenty of other cops and so on. And so, you know, the thing that I always think about is like, how can we address the power that lets someone get away with that sort of thing? And then also try and redress the harm. So, you know, if I was someone who had my house foreclosed as a result of the financial crisis, I can see feeling better that if a CEO unlikely goes to jail, goes to prison. But also if I got my house back, if I was made financially whole, that would probably be better. And so, you know, shifting away from punishment we to thinking about harm we might think about redressing the power imbalances and also about making people whole as best we can and i think that's probably a better outcome for everyone involved and in general i think we're probably on stronger political ground trying to address those power imbalances than we are leaving them intact but then trying to bring individuals um to be held to account under the law what what would you say, though, to the argument? Because I could imagine a natural rejoinder here that part of the power of somebody like Harvey Weinstein over and above his money was the perception that that uh, he was sort of immune from, uh, you know, uh, punish like any sort of accountability whatsoever within the, the you know, criminal system. Um, and that, you know, uh, like like the idea of deterrence basically that that the the idea that even if you know you may be socially advantaged you may have some money uh you will still be busted if you do xyz you know like that that seems to be like not a ridiculous thing to say about like the the nordic levels of low murders for instance like i think you're always going to have some murders you know, there's always going to be disgruntled husbands or wives or, or you know, like drunken arguments to get out of hand, that kind of thing. Um, at some, you know, maybe, maybe you could get it down to a really low level, but there's still some of it there. But, you know, insofar as, like, people don't, like, have something like that happen to them and then maybe take things into their own hands, you know, that seems like a root of a lot of gang violence here in the, in the, uh, well, Philadelphia, for instance, or many other big cities, like the uh, the idea that it's important to do something, you know, like the punishment, I feel like could be very mild or even not even involve prison, just say, like, we're going to confiscate all your money. Um, but to, to say that, like, to redress that power imbalance, to say that no one's immune, you know, if you commit a, if you commit a crime, you're going to you know, do the time, quote unquote, whatever it may be. Some, even if it's just a token punishment, we're going to do a symbolic thing to you and every, to demonstrate to everyone that you are not, you know, immune. You know what I'm saying? What, what would you say to that type of argument? So there's a, there's a couple different layers. Is one is um, that would, I mean, especially if you're talking about rich and powerful people in the United States, that um, that is a a rather tremendous difference. And I would say 
in all honesty, I actually think that that's more utopian than <laughs> anything that I'm proposing. Um, that said, um, I think the other issue is that even if we're not talking about like, you know, famous, powerful people, I think a lot of harm is people exploiting the relative powerlessness of other people, right? Um, so um, Beth Ritchie is a scholar who talks about this that says the, the people that are most likely to be um, victimized tend to be also the people that society in general and also the authorities are least likely to take seriously. Um, yeah. And yeah. this gets into this notion of like, you know, who is who is criminalized and who's not. So oftentimes those those are the very sorts of people who find themselves criminalized as victims. So if we're thinking about the the, um, the prime example here would be, you know, um, black women who are um, victims of sexual assault often are themselves criminalized. Um, and so, you know, part it's, of it's the inverse. It's the inverse of Karen of the Karen. It's the exact inverse of the Karen. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually, I think, really important that one of the things I talk about is that I think inherent in our notion of crime is an idea of there are certain types of people who are perpetrators, who are inherently dangerous and violent and criminal. And this is very racialized and classed and gendered. And there's other people who are inherently victims or, you know, stereotypical victims. And then there's the authorities. And this is three different groups of people who are understood as entirely separate. Um, and when you're a victim and you fit into the victim stereotype, you tend to be treated relatively better. Um, if you're someone who's victimized and doesn't, you're more likely to be criminalized. If you're an authority figure that engages in harm, um, it's very hard for us to take that seriously, especially if you're targeting you know, the criminalized type of people. Um, and so like this is part of what we need to break out of. But the other thing I would say is that, um, abolitionists are not talking about like, let's just not do anything. Um, or, you know, even for leaving aside like all the things we want to do on the front end to make it less likely to prevent it, which I think there's a lot we can do. But the, the, the back end of it is addressing the harm. Actually, it's already happened. And so if someone um, harms another person, um, this creates needs on that other person's part. And I think we would understand it as creating obligations. And the notion around, um, you know, some of the different ways of thinking about justice are when someone's harmed, it's going to create needs and we should address those needs and it's going to create obligations on the person who did the harm. And we should think about how we can um, try and have that person do that. One of the problems is that under our system, if you have committed a harm, the incentive structure is for you to deny it. Right. So let's say I did something and I harmed another person and I'm being prosecuted. My lawyer is going to tell me deny it. Don't say anything, first of all, which you should definitely not say anything when you're talking to the police. But <laughs> that would be correct. correct <laughs> um, but then secondarily, also deny it. Right. And and then 
once you negotiate, you know, for most of us, maybe not me, but for, you know, 95, 99% of the population, if you end up in this situation, you're going to end up doing a plea bargain where you're going to have to admit to something. So first you deny it and then you admit to it. And the thing you're admitting to might not be the thing you did, <laughs> right? It might not be true, but that's kind of yeah. what the, the norm is. And so part of this notion is to say instead, what if we had a system where when that happens, we, we, can, we are organized in such a way that we can talk about like what happened and be open about it and people could say, yes, I did this thing. I harmed this person and I understand it you know, from them. These are the, the things that happen as a result and I'm going to take these steps to try and make it better. Um, that's a, a different way of holding people accountable. And I would argue that it's actually a better way as opposed to the denial first, admit later thing that happens as a result of the, the way that um, criminal law is structured. Right. And there are, you know, the, the phrase that's often used with, with this um, is restorative justice, right? You have, and I think that's a really important um way to think about things as opposed to punitive or, or the punishment system, which, um, which doesn't serve anything other than punishment, it seems, because, uh, and, and this, is the, this is one of those things, I love theory, but the, the more you actually dig into the empirics and the data here, uh, which is interesting, the more that you learn how much our current system doesn't do the things we think it does, or so many people think it does. Uh, deterrence, uh, even in Norway, I don't think deterrence is what prisons are doing, Right. I don't think that's what prevents the social harms from arising. And, and people don't know this, but but like murder is a very rare thing for people to do more than once, for example. But I bet people don't know that. Right. So so like because because police almost never anywhere are arriving on the scene in the middle of a crime. Right. Uh, they're almost never preventing something like in the moment, like never, basically, almost never. Uh the other thing you would want is deterrence. And if it's not doing that, the last thing you would want is to somehow make whole or restore the victim. Um, and some people think you do that by punishing someone else, but the kind of consciousness that inculcates, right? And what that does to us as human beings is not good for us. And it's not good for the, for the common good. It's not good for the body politic or for, or for the individual's body, which is not to say that people don't have a right to process trauma in however way they're processing it. But as a political point, uh, it's just not true that like, you, you know, oh, I forgot to mention rehabilitation, right? Rehabilitation was the original justification for our current carceral state, like the penitentiary to be penitent, to make you kind of, you know, become a new person. And it, and it, it doesn't do that. So like, it's again, having to reimagine, right? Like, why are we doing this to each other, right? Just a quick point on, on, uh, on the, the deterrence theory. I think that the the argument there is not so much about repeat offenders, but about first timers. You know that, that there there's some research uh, demonstrating that the level of impunity, um, you know, that like like the chance of being caught if you commit a murder, like regardless, uh, that that if there is a high level of impunity, then that tends to raise the crime rate because people people perceive that they're not going to be caught if they commit it. Of course, that's the the, the like the most you know, convincing parts of that uh, pieces of evidence there are, are in like developing countries, you know, in Honduras where the murder rate is crazy yeah. high. Um, but, 
I think you're. Now, what's interesting, Ryan, is, is that true? Sorry, just a question uh, about that. If under a reimagined system, people are still caught, as it were, that's separate from whether what we do with those people is put them in a cage, right? So, like, would yeah. the right? So, pr- presumably, there's a form of deterrence from the acknowledgement, like, here's a person that did some harm, and the community sees that, and then what we do with that person then could be different, right? Yeah, get. I mean, getting caught, I think, is the thing that matters in terms of deterrence, and what you the punishment is almost irrelevant. Um, and I, you know, I will say that, you know, there's a good New York Times story from a number of years ago uh, where, you know, an American journalist went and toured, uh, you know, a bunch of Norwegian prisons and, you know, was just like completely baffled and astounded by the level of luxury, you know, you had. But um, she, she talked to, uh, you know, a Nor- Norwegian or a Nordic um, criminal researcher and said that, like, you know, that that. Norway seems to have maybe somewhat less recidivism rate than the United States. But like at the end of the day, that's not really the point of it all that, you know, insofar as these prisons are comfortable, the main reason is the main reason to do that is because of the, what it says about you, the the prison guard and the state and also the society as a whole, that their argument is that maybe it prevents crime, maybe it doesn't, but it's inherently terrible to have these, you know, just just like brutal, solitary confinement, violent prisons where the, the you know, everybody inside is viewed as sort of subhuman. And, you know, they want their guards uh, and, you know, their sort of corrections uh, counselors and so on to view themselves as being part of a, you know, socially positive thing, that it's, that it's about like the society in general and not um, yeah. necessarily about crime control. That, that, that makes sense. You know, w- w- yeah. Would you would would you because it seems to me that 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 makes good sense. But but why even use the term punishment? It, accountability, obligation to each other, right? Could be like the way to, and that's why like restorative justice seems to uh, move away from that vengeance oriented thing that can lead to those kind of conditions. So yeah. so maybe just yeah, go ahead. They're not going as far as you know we might say, but I think that 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 illustrates sort of the idea, you know, in a sense to be like. Um, you know, they've not gotten to a point or maybe they, you know, just haven't thought it, thought it through or progressed or whatever. They still have prisons, but they're thinking about it in this, this same type of way, um, that it, it, it should be, you know, about rehabilitation and, and not about, you know, exercising your sort of like brute animalistic instincts to extract vengeance and so on. I think it's it's an interesting point that kind of brings up something else I've been thinking about a lot. And I saw um, or heard um, Orisomni Burton say this the other day. So you all will remember the, the case in Buffalo where the police pushed the elderly gentleman over and he hits his head and starts bleeding. And um, what Ori said is that um, if, when you watch the video, you see that the cop who pushed him um, stops for a second as though he's going to help. And the cop behind him pushes him forward and then everyone keeps yeah. moving. And so what you had in that moment is that the, the, the officer did a de- his act was dehumanizing. Right. And he had a brief moment of humanity after he did that, which is a pretty normal human response that anyone who's doing violence work, which is what police are like, have to um, quell. And 
but the system ensures that anybody who kind of steps out of line, someone else is going to keep them in line. And so everyone kept going and left him on the ground. Many of the um, big instances of police brutality when someone's been murdered um, have involved like the, the ones that have caused the most um, attention have tended to be ones like something with Michael Brown, who was left on the ground after being um, shot. Um, and they were they didn't give him. Um, any first aid and they, in that case they actually prevented the EMTs from coming over and doing it either right and that's a pretty typical sort of thing and part of it is what we're talking about here which is that the job and the culture of the job whether it's police or prisons requires a certain level of dehumanization and that that not only is bad for the people I mean it's obviously worse for the one who's the target of it but it's actually not healthy for the people who are doing it to be dehumanized in that way and to go back into their communities having done that. The other thing is that when people do that, when we treat, um, whether we're talking about policing, the way people are treated is inherently dangerous or like what we do when we lock someone up and we cage them, it, it makes, because most of us are inclined to think that the world actually makes sense when you see that, you have a tendency to assume that the people that are treated that way must have done something to deserve it, right? Um, and that's a, a way for us to be able to justify that. Um, so that construction of criminality and all that sort of thing is as much a pro product of prisons and policing as it is a cause. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to say related to this is what what you were talking about um, Alexi, about like the, the police can't always be there, right? There's no amount of policing that we can do that there will always be a, an officer there to stop the bad thing from happening. And so one of the things that happens that we can talk about from an abolitionist perspective, although again, it's something that you could get on board with otherwise, is saying like, well, how can we address these problems without, you know, in other ways? So I'm thinking of something like bystander intervention, right? If everyone in the United States or the world really was trained on bystander intervention so that we were trained to notice that when a situation was going in a bad place and maybe required some sort of intervention and taught strategies about how to do it. And not only that, that you knew that everyone else was so trained so that if you stepped in, there were other people who could help. Um, how many problems would could we avoid because we stopped them long before they come to that point? Right. Um and in that case, you don't rely on the police having to be everywhere because we're all everywhere and we're organized and we have the skills um, collectively to do something about it. So there's no obviously that doesn't mean that you're not going to have any serious harm. It doesn't mean you can get that to zero. But of course, the present system can't suggest that at all. Um, but we could probably do a lot of things where we interrupt the harm earlier on. That makes so much sense to me, Dave, insofar as, you know, the call to socialism is the call to democracy. And of course, democracy rule by the people means that people are actual citizens, you know, not just people who do like a, a hashtag, you know, Black Lives Matter on, on Twitter and think that's what citizenship is, right? But like people, if you're going to, if the people are going to rule, it makes us not just empowered, but responsible to each other in ways that require education and relationships and doing those things that, you know, 
many people under capitalism, understandably, are are so exhausted in their kind of wage slavery that they just want like the police or the military or whomever to deal with those harms and those people, right? And so like part of this project is realizing that no, democracy is not just about getting rid of inequality. It's also about empowering people, giving them mere life so that we could flourish in a way that makes us accountable to each other and changes our subjectivities uh, you know, and who we are, and so that we don't need these monsters. Because what what you said about um, the harm that's done to basically the soul of the of the cop who who shoved that seventy five year old man and, and made him bleed through his ears is you know it reminds me of what James Baldwin said, right? And and James Baldwin took a different point of view uh, than you did, Dave. He thinks it's actually worse. He says Sheriff Clark must be a monster, you know, to 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 put the cattle prod on the woman's breast. And what does it? What kind of person is capable of that? And that's even a worse fate, thought Baldwin. And so in some sense, we're making everyone better by being responsible and caring for each other, not just atomized citizens, but also simultaneously taking away the monstrosity that's called for, right? So I, I think that's a, it's a beautiful way of pointing out how this is part and parcel of that broader socialist project. And related to that is just while we are simultaneously cause, calling for this rather tremendous change, there are things we can do right now as individuals and in our communities to begin to take on these demands. What we're talking about here is us kind of acknowledging our obligations to each other as fellow humans and, you know, the, you know, being within the same family or being in a neighborhood or whatever, that those all create obligations as well. And so how can we figure out how to get the skills we need and the resources we need and get collectively organized to address those sort of things. And those are all things that we can do, on our own without the state and which isn't to say there's no role for the state there obviously is um and you have to be able to do things that the state will let you get away with so i'm thinking about this um uh the hotel in minnesota where the um activists took it over and housed 200 homeless people um in minneapolis um and as a result the uh hotel was not burned down as many things were in the area um, and all these people were kept safe. So that's some like real public safety there, um, like organized this kind of anarchist inspired, you know, self-organization type thing. And um, now the state is moving in to evict everyone. So, yeah. And so there are things you can do right away. But I also don't want to suggest that that's like we can just do it all on our own and that's no big deal. But like something as simple as rethinking when, you know, calling the police is a huge deal. Because um, one of the problems here is that, in particular, white people, but a lot of people who aren't police, are deputized as police. So if you think about the the Karens that we talked about before, you know, people calling the police, um, particularly on black people, but you know, others that they they think they can get away with, homeless people, and so on. Or you think about um, there, we've had multiple cases that have been made an issue, become an issue where it wasn't the police that killed someone, but was someone was kind of police adjacent. Right. So the, um, there was the case in Georgia where it was a, a retired cop and his son that, you know, claimed that someone fit the description, a jogger that they then killed is Aubrey. Mm -hmm. Um, so or the, Trayvon Martin, just like Trayvon Martin, a modern day slave, slave patrol, right? George Zimmerman. And and then George Floyd, who the police were called on George Floyd because the cashier at the um, store thought that he had passed a bad twenty dollar bill, I think it was. Um, and there's a law 
in the state or in the city where they have to call the police if that happens. And as a result, George Floyd gets killed. And so that store owner, who was the one that did it, you know, has said since then he would never do that again. He, he absolutely didn't intend to bring that sort of violence down on George Floyd. You know, and also, aside from the fact that he didn't want that anyway, he had no idea whether George actually int- knew that it was a bad bill. Um, but so many of us, if you think of, you know, in schools, so discipline is often calling in the police. So we are deputized as police in that way. And so um, part of this is about like breaking those sort of relations. And it's also about finding other ways that we can address these problems. And that can be something as simple with like the, the there's these graphics around calling the police, which is just thinking it through. Is this a is this really a problem or am I just bothered? Then don't call the cops. Is it a problem I can handle on my own? Then don't call. Is it a problem I could handle if I bring in some other people? Are there other people I could call? And so, you know, maybe you get all the way down and you say, I've got no other options. But thinking through those other options first. Um, and it's a rather small thing, but it has the potential to really shift our way of thinking. And if none of that works, we could remind people that snitches get stitches, right? Am I right? <laughs> no, st- snitches get restorative justice. <laughs> <laughs> well, and just a constant reminder that like a real possibility is that at the end of the day, someone gets killed. And if not, there's still plenty of violence that comes with the other options. So, you know, yeah. being aware of that. Cool. Well, I think we should probably let you go, Dave. It's been a been a bit over an hour, but um, yeah, thanks thanks for coming on. That was a, that was a lot to chew on, and um, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be uh, we'll be back uh, quite soon with another episode on. Not sure what yet, but it'll be good. <laughs> we could promise you that. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Dave. Appreciate you being here. Thank you.